America, and other free and open societies face crucial challenges and opportunities abroad that affect security and prosperity at home. This is a series of conversations with guests who bring deep understanding of today's battlegrounds and creative ideas about how to compete, overcome challenges, capitalize on opportunities, and secure a better future. I am H.R. McMaster. This is Battlegrounds. On today's episode of Battlegrounds, our focus is on the Chinese Communist Party and the People's Republic of China. Our guest, Tong Yi, is a Chinese human rights advocate who worked as an interpreter for Wei Jingsheng, the prominent Chinese democracy advocate and dissident. After translating in Wei Jingsheng's meetings with then-Senator John Kerry and Assistant Secretary John Shattuck, Yi was sent to a labor camp for two and a half years. She endured prolonged beatings for protesting the camp's conditions. After Yi and a fellow inmate smuggled a letter detailing the abuses, her story garnered international attention and she was released. She then immigrated to the United States. The Chinese Communist Party, or CCP, was founded in 1921, following a decade of profound change and turbulence in China. In 1911, the Xinhai Revolution ended nearly four millennia of dynastic rule and catalyzed anti-imperialist sentiment. Sun Yat-sen served as provisional president of the Republic of China from January to March of 1912 and was known for his Three Principles of the People. In 1914, Japan seized Germany's concession in China's Shandong province. When the 1919 Treaty of Versailles did not return the concession to China, thousands of Chinese students gathered in Tiananmen Square to protest. These protests grew into the nationwide May 4th movement, which called to return China to international prominence through adopting Western science and democracy and abandoning Confucian ideals. Meanwhile, Russia's 1917 revolution spread Leninist ideas eastward. Marxism, anarchism, Bolshevik ideology, and Leninist theory gained traction among Chinese intellectuals, and Soviet communists helped found the CCP. The CCP grew quickly. In 1924, it aligned with the Kuomintang Nationalist Party to create the First United Front and eliminate the warlords they believed impeded a stable central government's formation. On April 12, 1927, Chiang Kai-shek led nationalist forces to purge the country of communists in what became known as the Shanghai Massacre. Civil war erupted and lasted until the CCP's 1949 victory, establishing the People's Republic of China. The nationalist government withdrew to Taiwan. CCP founder Mao Zedong led China by constructing a cult of personality. He suppressed perceived enemies, engaged in arbitrary arrests, and killed an estimated 700,000 perceived political opponents of the CCP in his first three years. Mao initiated the Great Leap Forward, a campaign spanning 1958 to 1962 to reconstruct China as a communist economy and society. The results were catastrophic. Over 30 million people died in the largest famine in recorded history. Mao then launched the decade-long Cultural Revolution to purge any remnants of capitalist, nationalist, or traditionalist elements from Chinese society. 
an estimated 1.6 million people were killed and tens of millions persecuted. The U.S. and China began secret negotiations in the early 1970s as President Richard Nixon sought to counterbalance Soviet influence in Asia and resolve the Vietnam War. National Security Advisor Henry Kissinger visited Beijing secretly in July 1971, and Nixon visited China in February 1972 in the first high-level contact between the two countries. Mao died in 1976, and on January 1, 1979, the de facto CCP chair Deng Xiaoping and President Jimmy Carter established formal diplomatic relations. In the 1980s, Deng attempted to liberalize China's economy from central planning to market orientation and open China to foreign investments and ideas. Yet political reforms lagged. Students led demonstrations in response, calling for individual rights and freedoms. The CCP heavily suppressed the demonstrations, and party elders forced the de jure general secretary Hu Yaobeng to resign in 1987. Zhao Ziying succeeded him. Two years later, Hu died and became a martyr for liberalization and democratization. Following a tradition of using sanctioned public mourning as an opportunity to express dissent, students came to Tiananmen Square to commemorate Hu and call for reforms. They remained for weeks. On June 4th, Deng ordered martial law and demanded the Chinese military regain control of the area. The People's Liberation Army entered central Beijing with tanks crushed numerous protesters and opened fire. Hundreds of individuals were killed. Similar protests outside of Beijing were also brutally crushed. Zhao was removed and succeeded by Zheng Zemin, who largely continued Deng's policies. After the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991, the United States pursued engagement with the CCP based on the hope that increased economic and diplomatic interaction with China would liberalize the country. In 2001, the U.S. cemented China's status as a most favored nation, further integrating the country into the global economy in the hopes of promoting democracy and economic reform. President Bill Clinton advocated for economic and strategic partnership between the U.S. and China and effectively endorsed China's accession to the World Trade Organization. In 2002, Hu Jintao succeeded Jiang and prioritized economic growth and poverty reduction through his harmonious society policy. Xi Jinping succeeded Hu in 2012 and consolidated power, eliminated his political rivals, and accumulated several top positions in CCP leadership. Xi, like Mao, has promoted a cult of personality. He has cracked down on dissent, human rights advocacy, and freedom of expression while perfecting a technologically-enabled police state and extending repression to Hong Kong. He launched the Belt and Road Initiative, which seeks to expand China's global influence through infrastructure projects. China under Xi has built and weaponized islands in an effort to control the South China Sea, and his soldiers bludgeoned Indian soldiers to death on the Himalayan frontier. The CCP maintains control through manipulation of history, brutal repression, a sustained campaign of propaganda, continuous surveillance, and the weaponization of social networks. We welcome Tong Yi to discuss the history of the CCP, the competition with China, and the prospects for human freedom. Tong Yi, welcome to Battlegrounds. It's an honor to host you today, and 
it was a real pleasure to meet you when we testified together before the, the select committee on the competition with the Chinese Communist Party. Your testimony was really brilliant and, and, uh, and heartfelt and, and important. And it's wonderful to be able to follow up with a discussion with you on Battlegrounds. Welcome. Thank you so much, General McMaster. It's such a pleasure to see you again this night on, online. It's a great honor to be invited by you to be on this program. Thank you. Well, hey, the, the honor's mine. And, you know, the, the last time we talked, we talked about really how we got here today. And, and, and we discussed really the assumption that dominated America's approach toward the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, since the end of the Cold War. And that fundamental assumption was that, that China, having been welcomed into the international order, uh, would, would, would play by the rules. And then as China prospered, it would liberalize its, its economy and liberalize its form of governance. And I'd like to just ask you, what's your view of how we got to where we are today? What was wrong with that assumption? Why, why did leaders in the United States, I think we could argue, hold on to that assumption for, for too long, even after it was clear that that assumption was uh, was false. Yeah, the problem with the assumption was that it fundamentally misperceived the nature of the Communist Party of China from its roots in the 1930s until the present day. The goal of this group has not been national welfare for China, but extension of the wealth and the power of its own people and specifically the families that ruled the group. In the 1940s, as the armies of the KMT nationalists and the A-bombs of the US defeated the Japanese, the CCP took ruthless advantage of an opportunity to grasp power in all of China. After which in, in the 1950s and the 1960s, it launched a series of cruel campaigns including the very quixotic great leap forward that pursued power for the CCP elite. As in the mafia, which it resembled, struggle with external enemies soon give way to rivalry and betrayal among the red families themselves. The big mistake of foreigners was not to see the CCP for what it was they took it to be a more or less nas normal national government and were deluded by its language that claimed itself to be the People's Republic of China with the People's Liberation Army and so on. When in fact, the government, the army, the land, the economy, and almost everything else was the private property of the families that ran the party. After Mao died and the CCP announced a new phase of reform on opening around 1980, many Westerners, partly from naivete and partly self-congratulation, assumed that, aha, now they're turning to be more like us. They now appear to be pursuing modernization, which would mean probably everything that came along with the modern world. But that was not the CCP's aim. The aim was still, as from the 1930s on, the wealth and power of the red family elite. And the means, as always before war, be as ruthless as necessary. 
the question of why U.S. leaders held on to this their wrong assumption for so long is not something I can answer from direct experience. But from reading and from indirect experience, I do have some opinions. Nixon's and Kissinger's obsession with the Soviet Union distorted their perception of China. Seeing China only as a counterbalance to the Soviet Union, they did not look into what the CCP actually was. They thought they were dealing with a nation, not with the top downs in the mafia of red families. The Tiananmen massacre in 1989, followed by the collapse of Eastern European communism and then the Soviet Union itself, should have allowed the US leaders to change their policy. The moral bankruptcy of the CCP had been put on display and the need for a counterbalance to the Soviet Union had disappeared. This was a golden opportunity for the US to make a difference. And the people like me could not understand why President Bush and Clinton did some of the things that they did. A few weeks after Tiananmen massacre, Bush sent emissaries to Beijing in secret to assure Deng Xiaoping of continuing US dedication to good relationships with him. Clinton defeated Bush in an election while promising to deal differently with the butchers of Beijing. <clears throat> but then in 1994, abruptly decided to delink trade policy for, from human rights, ending in one fell swoop the US practice, which had been very effective of conditioning most favored nation trading status on the CCP's behavior in human rights. It took some time for people like me viewing these things from afar in China to realize that principle had been sacrificed for greed. The allure of China, both as a potential market and as a huge pool of high quality and low wage labor for manufacturing was overwhelming for people with dollar signs in their eyes. Some must have noticed that the low wage labor was kept in line by an authoritarian government that had no use for things like OSHA rules, independent courts, free unions, or a free press, and must have felt guilty. And perhaps the guilt was assuaged by the thought that in the long run, economic growth would eventually lead to political change. A rising middle class would lead to democracy. <clears throat> But that did not happen. And if the US had understood the CCP properly, it might have seen in advance that that wouldn't happen. The newly wealthy families in China are precisely the CCP families. And if they are not, the CCP buys them off. And if that does not work, the CCP harasses them and they imprisons them no differently from the way it represses political dissidents. Perhaps the biggest mistake of US policymakers to allow the CCP under the label of China into WTO in 2001. Anyone who had understood the history of the CCP 
would not even have expected to follow rules. Rules like armies or political factions are things that you walk around in order to win. The CCP's economy took off after 2001 and came to rival that of the US, except for a few clear-eyed thinkers such as Robert Lighthizer, few in the US predicted that China would so quickly become a peer competitor of the US. Lighthizer has estimated that the US has transferred at least $300 billion annually to China through theft of intellectual property. The harm to the US has been well documented U.S. manufacturing capacity has been hollowed out. Millions have lost their jobs. Oh, you, you've given us so much there. That's brilliant, by the way. And I'm just thinking of the contrast between your description of the party and the and the history, uh, and and the way that Xi Jinping, uh, you know, portrays it to the Chinese people and the world. Right. The that you've really countered. The narrative of you know of the century of humiliation in which all of the ills uh, that that visited China were due you know to uh, to, to colonialism rather than uh, colonialism certainly but but how about the destructive nature of the party I mean I think it's important for our viewers to understand uh, that the Chinese Communist Party has killed more people than Stalin and Hitler combined you know in in the in the form of you know, starvation and murder during the you know, the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution, um, and and um, and you're bringing to mind for me some some really great books that set the record straight. I think pretty well. I I really like John Pomfret's book, The Beautiful Country and the and the, and the Middle Kingdom. I think is a a, a great work. Uh, our, our colleague Elizabeth Economy has two great books on on the Third Revolution and then Ch and China uh, today and looking to the future. Frank Decoder's work. Uh, on his volume history uh, of the of the Chinese Communist Party, I'm thinking of Roche Doshi's book, The Long Game, where he lays out the, the, this narrative. These are all primary source uh, books, books that, that that go to primary sources. I think there is so much misunderstanding out there, and and what you really pointed out is, hey, the Chinese Communist Party is not just communist in name only, right? It, it's not as if it's not like Dr. Evil would say that they're not the Diet Coke of communism. They're the real thing. Right? And, mm -hmm. and so I would like to, to ask you maybe to talk a little bit more about what motivates the party. Because when you look at the party and you say, well, that doesn't make sense because you know, we do still tend to mirror image. I think this is one of the reasons why we didn't get it in terms of, of challenging this assumption we've talked about. Uh, but we, we tend to think that it doesn't make sense that they did zero COVID, right? It doesn't make sense that they cracked down on the tech sector. It, it, did, it doesn't make sense that, you know, that they, that they act in ways to restrict investment in China when they want it, like the crackdown on Bain and the other Western companies that are there to provide some degree of transparency uh, into Chinese companies and, and for, for investors in China. But but. Why does it make sense to the Chinese Communist Party to take these actions? What drives them? And, and why do they make, they being Xi Jinping, right, and, and those around him, uh, why, why do they make the decisions that they make? Um, glad that you mentioned so many wonderful books. <laughs> I would add James, James Mann's About Facebook. Uh, that, that's uh, published around 1998. 
that laid out all the you know U.S. policies from Kissinger Nixon until Clinton. That was a really brilliant book. Uh, after reading it, I, I, I you know I got a lot of it too. <laughs> and another one is uh, Princeton professor Aaron Freeberg. Um, Freeberg's yeah. yeah, getting China wrong. Right. Uh, yeah. Really, really a great book. Also, Absolutely. the CCP's approach to the world is simple: grab, monopolize, and maintain power. Special care is given to controlling any group that is based on cultural or religious values. The values of Han nationalism and money making are largely given free reign. But if you belong to an organized religion or a minority culture, you will be watched and might suffer harsh and cruel repression as the Falun Gong and weavers in Xinjiang have been. And the Tibetans, I would say too, right? Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Every person in the CCP ruling structure serves at the pleasure of his or her superior in this structure. So the decision he or she makes are aimed overwhelmingly at pleasing the superior. The top leader lacking a superior, so must look around him at his peers at the top, who are also his potential rivals. Mao was obsessed by fear of rivals around him. Xi Jinping cannot but have similar fears. CCP decisions are sometimes made not because of changed perception of the outside world, but because of the mechanisms of decision-making by the party of one, which is Xi Jinping. Well, I mean, these are, I think these are really important points uh, because you know what the party fears, I think, in part is is being seen to have been wrong, right? The party has to be right about everything. And and uh, and that's the nature of a, of a Marxist-Leninist system. You know, I'm thinking of about, I think it was two years ago, I can't remember exactly, when it was the anniversary of Marx's death. And and uh, and Xi Jinping gave this big speech in front of a, a huge portrait of, of Karl Marx. And, and of course, you know, he's created this whole body of, of, of Xi Jinping thought on, on communism, uh, with Chinese characteristics. And, and, you know, I think when we look at it, we think, oh, communism is passe, right? Didn't we get over that after the collapse of the Soviet Union? They think that this, this Chinese Communist Party is communist in, in name only. But could you explain a little bit more about the ideology of, of the Chinese Communist Party? Is Xi Jinping really a Marxist-Leninist? And, and what, what is your assessment in terms of the nature of the of the regime and the ideology that drives and constrains Chinese Communist Party leaders. Yeah, I recently finished a new book by uh, William Imbolton about Ronald Reagan's foreign yeah. policy. Great book. It, yeah, great book, where I learned that Reagan labeled China's government, quote, so-called communism, unquote. He saw it as different from Soviet and Eastern European communism. Reagan had a point. I don't think any of the CCP's top leaders have been great students of Marxism. In fact, dissidents within the CCP often become dissidents precisely because what they learned from Marx was different from what the top leader was feeding them. Mm -hmm. Still, we cannot say Leninism is a thing of the past in China. 
In the 1950s, the CCP borrowed its basic governing model from the Soviet Union, and elements of the model survive today. Mao also borrowed control techniques from Stalin, such as the idea that writers are engineers of the soul and that executions are a good way to handle opponents. Surveillance technology has, in a sense, helped the CCP to push Leninism, Leninism beyond what the Soviet Union or East Europe were able to achieve. It would be absurd to call Xi a Marxist, Marxist in anything but the most superficial sense. His formal education lasted only to junior high school. So on the internet today, the term, quote, elementary school graduate, unquote, has become a sensitive phrase <laughs> subject to monitoring and deletion. There are a lot of popular jokes about Xi's deficient education. Xi's move to model himself after Mao Zedong seems an obvious search for gravitas or charisma that he does not naturally possess. He publishes books of his speeches, thoughts, and directives, and mobilizes not only party members, but even school children to study Xi Jinping thought. Poster boards of quotations from Xi Jinping on roadways oblige a person to recall the Cultural Revolution. In fact, study sessions that students, teachers, and civil servants must attend every week have in many cases be counterproductive. They offend people who see them as a waste of time. Many Chinese think that she is afraid of a rich middle class in China because they will not be easy to control. They think she's plan may be to keep the populace relatively poor, thinking about their stomachs all the time and spend the, the state's money on military buildup and bribing foreign countries for their support and resources. But communism is still the ideology in China in the sense that CCP controls all of society. The West has to recognize this fact and deal with China accordingly. You know, there's, there's so much to talk about here. I remember when the, uh, you know, when the students had an uprising, uh, not an uprising, but protests, because they thought, you know, the government wasn't Marxist enough, and the party was just as brutal cracking down on the left-wing, uh, you know, demonstrations as they as they have against against others. And I'm thinking about, gosh, this point that you made, I've not heard other people make this, that maybe he doesn't want, you know, a strong middle class. I mean, I think that there is conventional wisdom that that uh, Xi Jinping is very anxious about growing out of the middle income trap uh, and generating enough domestic demand uh, to, such that China's insulated from any kind of economic or financial uh, consequences of, of its aggression abroad. Uh, but I'm thinking now, you know, youth unemployment is about 25% in the country between I think the ages of 18 and 25 uh, year, years old. And, and Xi Jinping recently said, what did he say? Bite the bitters. What's the, what's the phrase? And in Chinese that he's told young people? He said- What does that mean? What does that mean? That means, you know, live a very poor, hard life. Right. Just endure that hardship 
as a true communist youth should go through. Right, like suck it up, I guess he's telling yes, them. Yes, yes, that's a phrase. <laughs> and, 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 and I don't know if that plays well, you know, with the younger generation. And and uh, he is, of course, you know, he was himself subjected to the Cultural Revolution and his family was abused terribly. Uh, you know, his, I think his sister committed suicide over it and, and he was estranged from his mother who had to denounce uh, him uh, and, and, and his father during one of the struggle sessions. It's really odd. It's almost like a strange version of Stockholm syndrome that he has here uh, with the right. with the party, but but you know, of course, we're talking about the party and and its its roots and and Maoism and the and the Cultural Revolution and the Great Leap Forward and but also you know when when I visited uh, Beijing with uh, with President Trump and and they gave us a tour uh, of the of the Forbidden City, and I was struck by you know how much even the architecture there. Uh, is is uh, it, it evokes kind of a sense of, of hierarchy, right? It, it it sort of is meant to to see to 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 uh, to promote harmony, but that harmony comes from deference to a, a central authority. And mm -hmm. so, could you talk maybe about how the Chinese Communist Party's authoritarianism comes from obviously the party's past, but even might even go beyond that, uh, or, or further back in time to the imperial culture. Uh, of China. Yeah, certain features in Chinese tradition have helped the CCP to rule China. Respect for authority is certainly one, as you mentioned. Sacrificing individual, individual interest to the group, meaning to the authority, authority figure that rules the group, is another. Chinese tradition also allows nepotism to trump meritocracy. Hypocrisy and two-faced personality also thrive in the Chinese cultural environment. All of these lesser than attractive elements in Chinese culture help the CCP. Xi Jinping recently hosted the leaders of five former Soviet countries from the ancient Silk Road for a banquet in Xi'an. You saw the fanfare there. I did. I, and I, th I thought, you know, I, you know, I kind of liked it because it was also a bit of a, uh, a bit of an offense to Vladimir Putin in terms of displacing Russian influence right. in Central Asia. So, uh, right. but, you know, this was so what, what was your assessment of it? And because he did, did he did evoke, you know, sort, sort of images and, and imagery from from, uh, you know, from, from Tang Dynasty, the Tang Dynasty. Like, a, yeah. like a clothing and flags and images. Right. He was stressing Confucianism, even though blithely overlooking the Confucianism was criticized throughout China's 20th century and mightily attacked by Mao Zedong. Henry Kissinger recently com commented in The Economist that China is more Confucian than communist, but China is far less Confucian than our Taiwan, South Korea, and Japan. It was just, a, I think, image play to play up um, China's claim that it has 5,000 years of history. Therefore, we are superpower. You know, we have the, you know, credit or history to claim that. Right. And, and so much of the party's behavior, conduct, philosophy, you know, cuts against, uh, cu cuts against Confucianism. And but you know, I'd love to hear what what you know, what you would say to Americans, right? So we're 
we're talking about the Chinese Communist Party. We're talking about the flawed assumptions that that have underpinned our approach to, to the party. Uh, are we neglected kind of the nature of the party, its ideology, what drives and constrains the party? Why do you think this is important to Americans? I mean, I think when you look just in, in recent years, there's been a big shift. I think now Americans have come to the conclusion, except maybe for a few, a few on Wall Street who still haven't gotten the memo yet, mm -hmm. uh, that, that the Chinese Communist Party is is hostile uh, to U.S. interests in the world. If you just look back at at uh, at COVID, right, foisting COVID on the world, you know, going after anyone who was trying to ring the alarm bells about COVID, right, persecuting Chinese journalists and doctors who were trying to do so, subverting the World Health Organization. And then adding insult to injury, you know, with this wolf warrior diplomacy. And, uh, and but then it wasn't just informational aggression; it was cyber aggression, huge, uh, huge cyber attacks in the midst of the, of the pandemic. And then, and then physical aggression, you know, bludgeoning Indian soldiers to death on the Himalayan frontier, laying claim to the ocean in the South China Sea, and ramming and sinking Vietnamese vessels, the various threats to Taiwan, and and. Uh, and also to, to Japan and 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 uh, South Korea with these overflights and and uh, and, and threatening military uh, maneuvers and so forth. Uh, you know, you have now uh, you know the, these these campaigns of economic coercion that they've conducted also. You know, against Australia, Estonia. So I mean, the list goes on and on. And, and I think Americans uh, have come to the conclusion that the CCP uh, is is hostile. I think to uh, you know, to to the to the international order that has benefited it and the world, but what's your what, what do you say to Americans who who might think, well, why do we care, right? What why do we care what China does? We have our own problems. What what what's, what should Americans care about the nature of the CCP and its actions? To your credit, General McMaster, I think when you were the uh, National Security Advisor. You issued a report about uh, in in a sort of a national security assessment report, and, and that uh, national security strategy uh, right. from December two thousand seventeen. And just right. you know, it makes great beach reading, doesn't it? I recommend it to all of our viewers. Right, it was really <laughs> the foundational document to uh, to claim that the CCP's expansion into the world is inimical to U.S. interests. The CCP has a clear record of breaking rules and promises. She promised Obama not to install military equipment or facilities on artificial islands in the South China Sea, but then did exactly that. The CCP joined WTO, promised all sorts of market opening, but then did, didn't do it. It promised autonomy for Hong Kong until 2047 and drastically broke the promise in 2020. As the CCP grows richer and stronger, it bullies other countries. When a Chinese fishing boat entered Japanese waters and the Japanese dared to object, the CCP blocked the export of rare earth minerals to, to Japan. When Australia dared to inquire about the origins of COVID-19, the CCP banned imports of Australian coal and wine. Taiwan has been bullied by China for decades. She had broadcast his willingness to retake Taiwan by force during his reign, 
Already, we have witnessed PLA planes and Navy vessels flying close to Taiwan's airspace or waters almost on a daily basis. Now they're challenging US airplanes and naval vessels in the international waters around South China Sea and the Taiwan Strait. Even in the US, in the media, in political circles, and in universities, the CCP has been using what it calls united front efforts to encourage politicians, professors, students, and honorary people to be favorable to the CCP and to accept its ways of thinking. If China wins the competition with the US, the world will not be the same as the one we have been living in. Everybody's freedom will be checked by the CCP. That kind of dystopia world is something we must resist at all, at all costs. You know, Tony, I'm also reminded of some of the egregious behavior by the United Front Work Department uh, and in setting up these police stations internationally, you know, where they where they focused on policing the Chinese diaspora, but also, in, in our case, Chinese American citizens, intimidating them, trying to get them to, to fall in line. And I think I, I'd like to just make the make this point at this time. I mean, I I think I think what's one of the greatest strengths of our country is that we do attract some of the best and brightest people from around the world. And one of the great strengths of our nation are our Chinese Americans, you know, and 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 also you know, and also Chinese residents who, who are here from 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 uh, China. And, and I, I think what's really important is to distinguish between the Chinese people uh, and, and the Chinese Communist Party. And, and I think it's actually, you know, it's, it's actually unfair to, to Chinese Americans to, to, and, and, and actually kind of, uh, you know, bigoted uh, to assume that they would be in any way support the actions of the Chinese Communist Party. Obviously, it, it, it cuts against their values as, as Americans and, and why they came to this country to begin with. So. You know, I just wanted to, I just wanted to make that point so that there's no confusion, you know, about the nature of our of, of our of our of our conversation. You know, I, I think that also on universities, you know, there has been this this effort by the party to kind of police the thoughts of of, of Chinese students studying in America. And I think every university president and provost and deans of schools, you know, have to really work hard to to, to ensure that that Chinese students who are here enjoy the full experience of of freedom of speech and expression, and freedom of thought. So, so uh, you know, but really, what I what I am dying to talk to you about is all of this. But, but what I know the least about, and I think probably most of our viewers know the least about, is what the heck is going on inside of China, right? It's hard for anyone to understand what's going on because of the this technologically enabled police state, right? The the fear that people have of of, of saying the wrong thing, you know, and, and, and the party's ability to use technology to police even the thoughts almost of, of, of the people. Uh, we did see the white revolution a little bit and the protests associated with, uh, with the zero COVID policies. But how would you describe the dynamics inside of China, right? What, what are the strengths and weaknesses of the party? Um, you know, are, are, are the Chinese people happy or unhappy with the party? What, what, what are their perceptions of, of the CCP these days? It's very hard to penetrate China these days because with Xi Jinping's China is super sensitive to national security. The recent anti-spy law makes the reporting of almost anything inside China to people outside China 
potentially dangerous. The reason for this anti-spy law and the recent crackdown on due diligence firms such as Means, you know, obeying the consulting firm, in my view, is that she wants to ban access to economic and the social statistics that would reflect poorly on his zero COVID policies over the last three years. China's economy has not recovered from the zero COVID era as well as some expected. Instead of expanding at six to 8% a year, as was common in the past, China might be heading toward growth two or three percent or even negative growth. In particular, the real estate market now is in virtual free fall. The manufacturing segment has slipped and the export industry is under great strain due to the reorientation in supply chains by Western countries. Enormous debt is crippling households and the local governments. Cities across country have cut benefits for civil ser servants and delayed salary payments in some cases for teachers. Families are hoarding cash instead of consuming things because the social safety net is so unreliable. 2023 is also the first year in which China's population has declined. Very worrisome for the Chinese leadership is that the official unemployment rate for those who are 16 to 24 years old is around 40. Some say it's to 40%, close to 40% wow. in reality. She has said the young should learn to, quote, either bitterness, yeah, unquote. Right. We're discussing, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, evoking a phrase that was used during the Cultural Revolution when young people were sent to the countryside. Such a policy today would make young people really angry. Raised in relative comfort, they would not easily accept Cultural Revolution treatment. In March and April this year, we also saw white hair protests against cutbacks in medical care in some cities. The elderly protesters said their years of labor had earned their, the services. They were not asking for anything that wasn't rightly theirs. It's hard to say that many people in China are happy these days. Some are trying in every way they can to get out of the country. That's why we witnessed recent, in recent months in the southern border, there are so many Chinese are crossing the, the border now. Tongyi, that, that's just a great analysis. I mean, I, I, I think that what you've described to us is the difficulties the party has encountered in large measure because of their, their race to surpass the United States, right? They've, they've got mountains and mountains of local debt that were, you know, that were built up because of, of investment they've made, made, made to keep the, you know, the economic growth really artificially high. You know, the, the government is not really good at resource allocation, and so they've wasted a lot of these resources. You see that playing out of the real estate sector and really the inability to grow out of that middle income trap uh, where, you know, as wages rise, you know, manufacturing in China becomes less competitive. And so either you have to increase your productivity, well, which you can't do when you crack down on the tech sector, or you have to create 
internal demand, right? Domestic demand, which isn't happening because people are holding on to cash because they have this uncertainty about their future. So I do think it's a perilous time and it's a perilous time because of the party. And, you know, we see this happening in the big cities of China. And I've heard that it's it's even worse in like kind of the third tier cities where they've overbuilt and there are these empty buildings and, and spare capacity. And, and so, you know, I, I just think that what you've described to us is it's important because, you know, these authoritarian, statist, mercantilist models look strong, right, from the outside, but they're actually quite brittle, I think. Yes. And our democracies look kind of ugly, you know, our free market system looks ugly, but actually we're pretty resilient, right, because we have mechanisms for self-correction and reform, you know, short short of, of, of rev revolution. Uh, so, you know, I, I just wanted to, to also talk to you about, we have to talk about this is how the party victimizes its own people, right? So, I, you know, I, I think that by being against the Chinese Communist Party, I think that makes you for the Chinese people, and and not just kind of this, you know, the, the Han majority, which is is what the is what the party uses is try to get every everyone to conform to this, you know, this sort of uh, this Han nationalist uh, uh, sort of preoccupation or ideology uh, in the big cities, but but in the rural areas. And could you tell us about the plight of, of the Uyghurs in Xinjiang and, and you know, what's, what's happened in Tibet, what's happening uh, to freedom in, in Hong Kong? Yeah, okay. To answer your question, let me bring down uh, into categories of the different group of people. The first, the rural people, these are mostly poor people who live without a safety net. Previous Premier Li Keqiang revealed last year that there were more than 600 million Chinese who earned less than 1,000 yuan, around 140 US dollars monthly. And if I could just interject for one, for, for one second, this is around the same time, remember, that Xi Jinping had said, hey, poverty's over, right? Exactly. We won, right? Exactly. It's just barely above the international poverty line which is $2 per, per day. Their condition will worsen as China's economy turns down. Xi Jinping, fearing a loss of grain supply if international conflict should arise, these days has made a plan to use more farm fields for grain and has dispatched armies of agriculture police to mandate to farmers what grain should be grown on what land. This is a new phenomenon. It's a major reversal policy that have held since the 1980s. I predict there will be a lot of misery for the rural population. For Xinjiang weavers and to some degree Tibetans, the CCP has installed digital surveillance extensively inside Xinjiang, forced everyone to install surveillance apps on their phones and put millions of weavers into concentration camps where they are forced to relinquish their old religion and languages and to learn CCP ideology and pledge loyalty to Xi. We in the West have heard numerous reports on these conditions, but people in China, well, the news is strictly blocked, know virtually nothing of it. This is really, really bad. And I think, I think, you know, this gets to the point. I wish 
we would do more to poke holes in in the you know in the firewall, the information firewall. Yes, in that's China, and and you know it is it is genocide. I mean, you could call it slow genocide, whatever you want to call it. But but also, you know, the, these reports of forced sterilization, for example, mm-hmm. you know, and of course the the forced labor, the slave labor. I mean, it's it's terrible. And and you know, I think sometimes we lose sight of it after it's in the news cycle for a while. You know, we forget right. about it, kind of like we've we've forgotten about. Hong Kong. I mean, could you talk a little bit about about Hong Kong? What's happened there? You know, some. I mean, I think of some of the, you know, the real leaders of the of the you know, advocates for uh, for citizens' rights there, who are now unfairly imprisoned. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's almost like we've forgotten about Hong Kong too. Right, Hong Kong. You know, China has imposed a national security law in Hong Kong in 2020. Uh, basically ending the one country, two system that promised uh, to the Brit- Britain in the 1980s. And there are now more than 1,400 political prisoners there. The most famous, of course, is Jimmy Lai, uh, who is a dear friend to me, a billionaire who escaped China with Wang Yuan as a young teen and then educated himself and rose to be a visionary media tycoon. After he saw what happened in Tiananmen, he was determined to oppose the CCP. He sold his clothing brand and founded the largest Hong Kong newspaper, Apple Daily. He stayed in jail for more than 860 days now and is still waiting for his trial for so-called national security offenses. The world has witnessed the demise of free Hong Kong and has seen clearly how the CCP broke its promise that it it reached with Britain in the 1980s. That betrayal, of course, is a clear warning to Taiwan, the free Chinese-speaking democracy that lies across the Taiwan Street where all the international concern right now is, is, is focused on the Taiwan issue. Yeah, you know, you know Jimmy Lai had, had just uh, visited Hoover right before he was uh, imprisoned again, you know, and for this, for this long stretch of time. Uh, and, you know, I'm thinking just it was the, recently the 34th anniversary of the, uh, the, the uh, Tiananmen Square yeah, massacre. And, and I saw that, you know, that, that uh, the Hong Kong police were stopping and detaining anybody who wore black. You know, for example, or or anybody who appeared in some way to uh, to to be commemorating uh, commemorating the Tiananmen Square massacre, and and you know this is just an, an indication in Hong Kong, but it's really expanding across the whole country how they employ this Orwellian surveillance system, right? The technologically mm-hmm. enabled, really worse than Orwell ever imagined, right? Right. <laughs> to to create, you know, this the ability to stifle human freedom, to almost police people's thoughts, to make sure that there can't be any kind of an organization uh, against the party. So could you explain the party's mechanisms for control? We talked about a little bit when you said it's really hard to figure out what, what the Chinese people are thinking, but, but how does the party maintain its grip on power? What the CCP fears most is its own people, not the United States. And this means that maintaining control inside China is its ultimate mandate. Mao imported the Soviet police state from Stalin in the 1950s, and the CCP's security apparatus has been strong since then. Now, with the technology, 
uh, imported from companies such as Cisco, surveillance cameras are prevalent in every corner of Chinese cities. Monitoring apps during the pandemic were installed in everybody's cell phone, further enhancing CCP control. The CCP also invented a social credit scoring system. People who offend the government get low social security scores that can impede their abilities to buy an apartment or a train ticket. A digital dictatorship even beyond what George Orwell imagined in his novel 1984 is being realized in China. I, th I think it really is unwise to it just invest in China broadly at this point, but especially in these companies that have been part of establishing the police state. You know, I'm thinking of anybody who invested in Hikvision or Sense Time. Uh, actually, I mean, I'm sure didn't know it at the time, but you know, they have actually enabled this sort of uh, this this sort of extinguishment of human rights, uh, the, the campaign of genocide against the Uyghurs. So, so you know, I, I think investment in China should be an ESG issue, you know, <laughs> in right. uh, in American boardrooms, and and uh, and and I, I think we just have to have more of these conversations and and stop sort of in many ways underwriting our own demise and underwriting the demise of uh, of the of the Chinese people and and pay attention. I think your comments also tell us, hey, pay attention to supply chains, you know, and mm -hmm. and and ensure that you know ensure that you're safeguarding you know, your own, your own privacy, but also data and technology that's, that's critical, you know, to your business, right, or, or to, to anything. You know, I, so, so what, what can we anticipate about the future? What, what is the, what is the party's trajectory? I'm gonna ask you to do the impossible, right? I mean, to predict right. the future, you know, but, but what do you, what do you anticipate the party doing both internally, you know, we just talked about how they establish and maintain control, but externally is, uh, as yeah. well, and, and and also as you're thinking about your answer there, you brought you made me think of another book. This is this is Suleiman Wasif Khan's book, Haunted by Chaos, mm -hmm. and it's it's a really a whole book about about the party really being motivated principally by this fear of losing control. But but okay, again, you know, unfair question, but but how do you see the future? Yeah, just let me just give my a little bit uh, opinion here. Things do not look rosy for Xi Jinping now. The urban public is still angry about his COVID policies. The economy has been losing steam and he has been importantly responsible. His policy debacles caused him to feel insecure about his hold on power. He mobilized the country to study Xi Jinping thought. He arranges that his books be bestsellers in China some of his yes-men are pushing for a Mao-style cult of personality. Silly practices from the Cultural Revolution, such as weekly study sessions for civil servants, are resurfing. Speaking as an American citizen, I am actually happy in a sense to see Xi wasting the time and energy of his population on useless things like Xi Jinping thought. This will make our competition with the CCP easier to win. The stupidity will weaken the Chinese economy, frustrates its population, and stimulate unrest around the country. 
Yeah, sometimes I also think just, you know, humor is a good thing. I remember when, when Xi Jinping got really upset when he was portrayed like Winnie the Pooh, you know, and yes. it's really, <laughs> and you know, and we know the Chinese Communist Party has no sense of humor, no sense. Exactly, no, zero. So, so, so I, I guess a related question that, okay, what do we do about it? You know, so, so what we being not just government leaders or people in academia who are like we here at Hoover thinking big thoughts, you know, but, but what do, what do you think? The, the American people's responsibilities are people from like-minded nations, the private sector leaders uh, who make big decisions on investments or uh, or whether or not to engage in partnerships or to accept Chinese investment. What, what, what advice do you have about what to do about the problem set that we've talked about, right? A regime that's, that's hostile to our interests internationally uh, and is extinguishing human freedom uh, within China. The U.S. should stop playing with the CCP on a non-level playing field. A principle of reciprocity should be enforced. Oh. For example, the CCP does not allow Facebook, Twitter, or YouTube inside China, and we should definitely not allow TikTok or WeChat inside the U.S. This is our friend Bob Lighthizer. This is his favorite yes. word, Reci reciprocity. Absolutely. Exactly. <laughs> Views on TikTok and WeChat that the CCP disliked are deleted from those platforms, which therefore makes them into a one-way propaganda megaphone for the CCP. If they were two-way, they would be channels through which views that differ from the CCP's could penetrate China, but they're not. This is not unfair, not only unfair to the US, but in principle, a fundamental violation of free speech. In 2021, the de minimis exception for trade with China led at least $188 billion of goods into the US without any paperwork or tariffs. That made it possible for Chinese apps such as Pinduoduo, Temu, and Shine yeah. Right. which offered extremely low prices for everyday goods to become so popular in the U.S. And even, and even advertised during the Super Bowl, right? Right. <laughs> this is a stupid rule. I, th I thought uh, the Lighthizer uh, said it was put up in 2015 that allowed the CCP to, ex to exploit a trade advantage as well as to collect the private information of many American consumers. American universities need to be aware of whom they're training in STEM fields. How many PhD students bring their US-founded learning back to China for the use of an American adversary? Immigration law should be revised to reflect on how we attract and deploy talented Chinese students. I believe we should allure more Chinese students to learn history, political science, journalism, and law. These are the really important frontier to nurture Chinese uh, people's uh, views on democracy and how democracy in, in a real world really work, like in the United States. And I hope they get that at our universities. Sometimes, sometimes I worry uh, about about uh, the curriculum uh, right. in, in U.S. universities. But but uh, hey, I, I agree with you, and and I do think that 
you know, that, I mean, companies and the FBI can do due diligence, but more Chinese right. students is better. And, and I think keep more of them here. If, if we have Chinese engineers who are trained here, you right. give them H-1B visas, as long as they're not PLA scientists you know, or, or, or MSS right. agents. I want to add more. Um, the CCP threat to the U.S. interest has reached a degree where the whole of society approach should be used. Each U.S. citizen needs to be aware of the threat and should be ready to do what he or she can. Right. And also cannot be overstated how important it would be for the Chinese public to, be, to have better access to the truth. It is vitally important one way or another to dismantle the Great Firewall, as you mentioned previously. The more the Chinese people know the truth, the easier many things will become. Absolutely. Tanya, I can't, I can't thank you enough. We've covered a lot of ground and, and you have explained so clearly, I think, you know, the, the nature of the challenge in, in a place, I mean, in one place, in one interview, I think with a higher degree of clarity and comprehensiveness than I've heard really any, anywhere else. But I'd like to just ask you one last question. What, what did we not cover? What should I have asked you uh, that, that you'd like to share with our viewers? Yeah, I would like to highlight WeChat's pernicious effect on Chinese diaspora around the world. Yeah. WeChat's presence in the West hurt our interests. Most of Americans don't use WeChat, like you probably won't use, are not using WeChat. No, I'm, I, I'm kind of rusty on my Chinese. Right. So they don't <laughs> understand why WeChat is harmful for the US. Right. But almost every Chinese American uses WeChat to connect with families and the friends inside China. Inside China, WeChat is a must have super app. Outside China, it collects the data of overseas Chinese including their social networks, both inside and outside China, their professions and their personal issues, including. The CCP can then leverage this information for their purposes. Overseas Chinese Americans are targets of the CCP's influence or coercion. For example, many Chinese students in STEM fields in the 1980s and early 1990s who received permanent resident status after Tiananmen massacre, went on to successful careers in universities or companies here. Later, many were lured by CCP's Thousand Talents program to bring their knowledge home for CCP use. Bloomberg News recently revealed, for example, that Shannon Yao, who worked as a top scientist for Coca-Cola, tried to sell $120 million in Coca-Cola's trade secrets to a China-run company, which must be controlled by the CCP. Shannon Yao is not an outlier, alas. Many others from the 1980s and 1990s got educations in American graduate science programs funded by the US federal and local money they received green cards because of the Tiananmen students' movement or through work visas and were able to launch successful careers here in the US. Then when China's economy boomed, especially after joining the WTO, these people found themselves with incentives 
to sell their company's trade secrets or academic research to the CCP companies and offices. They set aside the fact that they are legally American citizens and have obligations to protect US interests. As we face heightened tension with the CCP, all of us, including Chinese Americans, must ask where our loyalty lies. This is a touchy topic with all the Asian hate noises mixed in. But at the end of the day, when conflict between China and the US breaks out, Chinese Americans have to take a stand. Are we for freedom or for dictatorship? I am one Chinese American for whom the answer is obvious. Well, Tony, I mean, you've helped us so much and, and uh, you're such a courageous person and, and a great leader at a, at a critical time to help us understand the nature of, of, of this threat. And, and I do just wanna highlight that, you know, I think now the situation has, has changed from those early days after, after Tiananmen. And, uh, and it's clear that the Chinese Communist Party is not gonna liberalize, it's not gonna play by the rules, it's not going to, 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 uh, to change its form of governance. And, and so we have to recognize the nature of the competition and you've really helped us do that. I wanna thank you on, on behalf of the Hoover Institution for helping us learn about a battleground important to building a future of peace and, and prosperity for generations to come. It was wonderful to have you on Battlegrounds and, and, uh, and on behalf of all of our viewers, thank you so much. Thank you for having me, General. Battlegrounds is a production of the Hoover Institution where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work, to hear more of our podcasts, or view our video content, please visit hoover.org.